Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 65, Down to Earth, in which we hear about how environmental observations finally coalesced into environmental chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Over several episodes already, we have talked about disparate observations that occasionally gave people pause, such as 19th century observations on acid rain, on the heat capacity of atmospheric gases, on lead poisoning and damage from mining, and so on. But in the middle of the 20th century, any dissent from the supposedly inevitable progress that chemical firms were bringing to civilization was drowned out by the grand successes. And the dissent finally made news with one person in 1962, the American biologist and science writer, Rachel Carson. Before there even was a science called ecology, she might be considered the first ecologist. In college, she started as an English major, but switched to biology, and then got her master's degree in zoology and genetics from Johns Hopkins University. Through the mid-1930s, she did research at the famed Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. In 1936, she was hired by the United States Bureau of Fisheries, later the Fish and Wildlife Service, in Washington, D.C., to be an editor and writer, only the second woman to gain a full-time job there. She published her first book in 1941 called Under the Sea Wind, describing how a seabird, eel, and fish all lived and interacted. Her next book in 1951, The Sea Around Us, has been described as a biography of the sea. A worldwide hit translated into 30 languages, the book made Carson one of the best-known science celebrities before Carl Sagan, Isaac Asimov, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Four years later, she advanced the cause of ecological systems, or ecosystems, with the book The Edge of the Sea. In a way, Carson was primed and ready to bring earth-shattering, or earth-destroying, news of what humanity was doing to itself and its planet. Recall also that the late 1940s and 1950s were already a worrisome time. The atom bomb had been deployed by the USA in World War II, Several other countries were either in progress or had just invented their own nuclear weapons, and science fiction was full of apocalyptic stories about the collapse of civilization after World War III. There was subconscious terror in the air, even as science brought a never-ending parade of discoveries and products to market. Some of those scientific discoveries included new chemicals developed before, during, and just after World War II for use in controlling agricultural and medical pests, and for improving the human existence. 
One of those new compounds was DDT, short for dichlorodiphenyltrichloroethane. DDT's molecular structure is an ethane molecule, two carbons. One carbon atom has two benzene rings with chlorines, and the other carbon atom has three chlorines. It really was known since the 1870s, but Swiss chemist Paul Müller found in 1939 that it was a great insecticide. Later in World War II, it was spread throughout tropical areas to halt the horrible diseases of malaria and typhus that soldiers contracted. Müller even won the 1948 Nobel Prize in Medicine for his discovery. DDT was marketed to farmers by the end of the war and did eliminate most of the problem of malaria in the USA and Europe. But word started spreading of potential problems with its use, and near New York City in neighboring Nassau County, there was a fight to stop its use. The New Yorker magazine hired Carson to write about this issue. Because of the DDT problem, Carson took on the looming problem of environmental pollution and wrote a serialized column for the New Yorker magazine, collected her writings into a book, and published it in 1962 as Silent Spring. The title of the book came from a letter of one of Carson's friends, Olga Huckins, who wrote the Boston Herald newspaper in 1958, describing deaths of birds on her property caused by mosquito spraying with DDT. As Carson wrote in Chapter 1, A Fable for Tomorrow, quote, What has already silenced the voices of spring in countless towns in America? This book is an attempt to explain, unquote. She wrote about how pesticides were destroying wildlife, harming the environment, there was no environmental science back then, and hurting human beings. She warned of overuse of these new and effective pesticides, while the chemical companies such as DuPont, which made DDT, and Velsicol, which manufactured Chlordane, threatened to sue her for, quote, emotionalism, unquote, and, quote, gross distortion, unquote. American cyanamide chemists were angry, threatening a, quote, return to the Dark Ages, unquote. Former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Ezra Benson took the low ad hominem method of attack. Quote, Why a spinster with no children was so concerned about genetics? Unquote. Plastering her with that catch-all, ridiculous label of communist. Scientists themselves were divided. There were the diehard progressivists dismissing the spraying of pesticides with no hard evidence, and the alternativists who were okay with trying other pest controls, such as biological methods. Of course, even negative publicity is publicity, and attacks on her merely increased public knowledge of the problem. CBS television aired a special called The Silent Spring of Rachel Carson in April 1963. The show got Congress to begin a review of dangers of overusage of pesticides. The American President's Science Advisory Committee released a report the next month backing her views. During the writing of the book, Carson discovered she had breast cancer. She died only two years after the book came out and never got to see the ultimate fruits of her work. 
but we shall explore them. Her book took the automatic shine off so-called progress as promoted by the chemical industry. The ecological and environmental movement in the USA and around the world exploded into action in the 1960s. Research at that time revealed that DDT itself was responsible for thin, fragile eggshells of large predatory birds, causing their rapid decline. An organization founded in 1967, the Environmental Defense Fund, made its major goal to ban the use of DDT. Which succeeded in 1972. One of their principles in bringing lawsuits in the USA against the American government was to quote, establish a citizen's right to a clean environment. Unquote. Sir David Attenborough has said that after Charles Darwin's *On the Origin of Species*, Rachel Carson's book *Silent Spring* was the book that most changed the world of science. Simultaneously with Carson's work, worry began to increase over the use of Thomas Midgley's favorite gasoline additive, tetraethyl lead, to prevent engine knocking. We talked about the introduction of this product, but not the ensuing problems discovered later. Now we reach that point. A consortium under the direction of the American Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Published a survey of lead in the atmosphere of three urban communities in January 1965. The report was the result of the Surgeon General being asked, as the report says, quote, "For the advice and guidance of the Public Health Service on the public health effects of increasing the maximum concentration of tetraethyl lead in motor gasoline from 3.0 to 4.0 milliliters per gallon." Unquote. The committee sampled air over Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati, Ohio, and took blood and urine samples from people there. They found lots of lead in both the atmosphere and body samples. Lead is, as we know now, and they did then, a health hazard. Another researcher was interested in lead, though, Claire Patterson, an American geochemist. Recall Bertram Boltwood in 1907, who made the first study of the lead-uranium ratio to find a rough guess at the age of the Earth. Dr. Patterson was improving that work by studying the semi-precious mineral zircon. Zircon is chemically zirconium silicate and is hard and extremely stable. Some zircon crystals have uranium contamination. And so geochemists use them to date rocks containing zircon by the lead-uranium ratio. Patterson was doing this research in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and kept getting extra lead in his results for unknown reasons. Finally, in 1953, Patterson and his PhD advisor Harrison Brown got a grant to build one of the first clean rooms. With ultra-filtered air to keep out lead contamination, Patterson studied the Canyon Diablo meteorite, which we already mentioned for its silicon carbide, and used the new technique of mass spectrometry, which we also recently discussed as helping to transform laboratory research. After screening out all the lead contamination, 
he found that the Earth's age was 4.550 plus or minus 0.70 billion years and gained a lot of publicity. This age was much older than the geologist had used till that time. But now Patterson was worried about this lead contamination and embarked on a new project to determine how widespread it was. Along with carbon cycles and nitrogen cycles, there is, of course, a lead cycle throughout the Earth. Patterson found that human based lead was entering the environment 100 times faster than being removed in streams to the oceans. Ocean water from deep sources had much less lead than surface waters. He got samples of ice from Greenland and Antarctica and published a ramping up of lead deposits since the introduction of tetraethyl lead. He published his research in an article in 1965 called Contaminated and Natural Lead Environments of Man. Lead seemed to be everywhere. He got into a nasty battle with, as you might guess, the Ethyl Corporation, manufacturers of tetraethyl lead for gasoline. Patterson also battled with a physician, Robert Kehoe, a professor of physiology and medical director of the Ethyl Corporation, that same company manufacturing tetraethyl lead. Kehoe's view was that the presence of lead in the human body is natural, and therefore it's just a matter of finding the toxic level of lead and remaining under that level. Therefore, if you find some lead in human bodies, that's not proof that lead is bad or wrong. He researched detectable lead in medical examinations, finding that 80 micrograms per liter of blood in adults and 60 micrograms per liter in children. Was the threshold for detectable effects. Kehoe was a reviewer of Patterson's 1965 paper on lead contamination and called Patterson, quote, woefully ignorant, unquote. Both Kehoe and Patterson were called before a new Senate Environment Committee in 1966 as prime witnesses. Kehoe claimed no problems from leaded gas and what alternatives are there anyway? Patterson attacked the government agencies as being in cahoots with industry and abrogating their duty to public health. Because of being critical of lead compounds, he became a pariah for many research grants and, ironically, a National Research Council panel on atmospheric lead. But later research supported Patterson's conclusions and not Kehoe's. Another environmental disaster came in 1968, when the North American Lake Erie, long subject to pollutants from grand and vast industries, was declared dead as a result of sewage, agricultural fertilizers, and pesticides. There were massive fish kills because the fertilizers encouraged algae blooms, which turned the water green and removed dissolved oxygen in the lake water. The following year, on June 22, 1969, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, which pours into Lake Erie, caught fire from a railroad spark, causing industrial wastes to burn with flames several stories high. Both of these events catalyzed a turning point in the American mind. Pollution has to stop. 
By 1970, two American legal events occurred. President Richard Nixon requested the ability to consolidate federal agencies dealing with the environment into one Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, plus the enactments of what's often called the 1970 Clean Air Act, though there was an earlier actual Clean Air Act of 1963. Congress required the new EPA to create appropriate pollution standards for various gases. Because it was recognized by that time that automobiles were a prime source for these pollutants, the EPA began to require the installation of equipment like Eugène Oudry's 1956 catalytic converter into exhaust pipes of new cars by 1975 to remove the noxious pollutants. And that fuel stations must sell unleaded gasoline so as not to destroy the catalyst. The problem is that leaded gasoline destroys the catalytic surfaces of the converter. Only with their backs up against the wall regarding smog did the powers that be finally acknowledge that tetraethyl lead had to go. Lead levels in the environment dropped something like 80% by the early 1980s. Because so many cars could only take unleaded gasoline. Even the leaded gasoline's lead content began to be reduced. Currently in the USA, the only gasoline allowed to contain tetraethyl lead is aviation fuel. But I should note that recent reports indicate higher lead levels have been found in people who live near airports. I would be remiss in not mentioning another environmental event that is now annually observed the world over since 1990. An American senator, Gaylord Nelson, saw an oil spill in January 1969 off the Santa Barbara, California coast. He wanted to harness the youth protests against the Vietnam War in another direction, towards saving the environment. He asked Congressman Pete McCloskey to assist in creating a teach in at American universities. The two legislators engaged a young activist named Dennis Hayes to do this toward the end of the spring term, or semester as we call it in the USA, on a weekday to get the most students involved. They picked April 22, 1970, as the teach in. Hayes created a large network of people to promote activities on April 22, 1970, and called it Earth Day, garnering 10% of the entire American population to take part in rallies and protests. Walter Cronkite, on a CBS special television event that evening, broadcast that, quote, It did not unite. Its demonstrators were predominantly young, predominantly white, Predominantly anti Nixon. Often its protests appeared frivolous, its protesters curiously carefree. Yet the gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through act or die.、Unquote. The environmental movement even spawned a Dr. Seuss children's book known the world over, The Lorax, the following year in 1971. One of the most famous quotes from that book is Quote, Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not.、Unquote. In later episodes, we will recount the multitude of accidents that tarnished the chemical industry permanently, 
as well as the variety of observations leading to legal restrictions on many chemical compounds and their usage. Naturally, chemical companies like ethyl in the bad old days get unhappy and nasty when their apparent livelihood gets threatened. Later, we will talk about the development of green chemistry and sustainable chemistry. Here we will leave the story as that the 1960s irrevocably changed chemistry, its perception, and its industry. The 1960s is when the discipline of environmental chemistry began to emerge. We are still in the throes of that change, and I pose the question to you. Will scientific observations win out over fear of change, and win out over money of lobbyists and pressure groups? In our next episode, we look at some of the weird and wild new polymers that chemists were developing in the 1960s. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.